Here's something I bet you didn't know. According to a report published by the World Health Organization, adherence rates to medicines in developed countries average only about 50%, and there is little data about adherence in countries where access to care is more limited or less consistent. Adherence is a key factor associated with the effectiveness of all pharmacological therapies, but it's particularly critical for medications prescribed for chronic conditions. Of all medication-related hospitalizations that occur in the United States, between one-third and two-thirds are the result of poor medication adherence. Inadequate adherence is also a major player in adverse events. Welcome to Physicians Weekly. Welcome to this episode of Physicians Weekly Podcast. My name is Dr. Rachel Giles from Medical Medical Publishers in collaboration with Physicians Weekly. We have three fantastic in-depth interviews for you this week, touching on improved hospital workflow for stroke patients, a presentation on management of gout dialysis in patients, and a presentation on management of gout in dialysis patients, and medication adherence. The Physicians Weekly Podcast provides thought leader insights on the latest medical news, clinical trial coverage, and advances in medicine and healthcare. In this 31st episode of Physicians Weekly Podcast, we speak with Dr. Danny Sands about addressing patient barriers such as understanding their condition, cultural issues, and denial can help patients avoid adverse events from poor medication adherence. Dr. Sands is a primary care physician at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center and is a founder and co-chair of the Board of the Society for Participatory Medicine. In 2009, he was recognized by Health Leaders Magazine as one of the, quote, 20 people who make healthcare better, end quote. Also in this episode, we speak with Dr. Anthony Blyer, professor of nephrology at the Wake Forest School of Medicine in North Carolina, about his presentation on the results of a cohort study into the prevalence, risk factors, and outcomes of gout in dialysis patients presented at the Kidney Week of the American Society of Nephrology annual meeting. It was held virtually between 4th and 7th of November, 2021. Visit physiciansweekly.com forward slash podcast. But first, Physicians Weekly speaks with Ferdinand Hui about workflow optimization and mobile technology. Dr. Hui hails from Johns Hopkins originally, but he's currently working in Hawaii, where we talk about the deluge of communication apps in hospitals and what makes something valuable versus noise. He recently published a paper in the Journal of Neurointerventional Surgery on the impact of mobile apps on treatment times for patients with stroke, where time is of the essence. His team showed that the utilization of rapid AI mobile application can significantly reduce treatment times in stroke care by accelerating the process of mobilizing stroke clinicians and interventionalists. What was the unmet need here that you were trying to address? Well, you know, there's a lot of interest in, in artificial intelligence and, and how it can help in healthcare. And uh, I think we all remember, you know, half a decade ago when billions of dollars and billions of dollars are still being spent in AI research. Um, but, you know, the number of moonshots that have really gone off from all of that funding isn't really that impressive. And, you know, one can worry about a third AI winter where another dearth of research and interest. I don't think we're going to be there. But the unmet need we're interested in is, you know, workflow, hospital workflow. For stroke, time is brain, as the aphorism goes. The more time we spend fussing around trying to get a patient to the hospital or past, the more brain dies for no particular benefit. What excited us about these platforms was that you had an automated platform that uh, was reading a CTA, CTP, CT 
angiogram CT perfusion and uh, potentially could accelerate the way we move data around, move the decision-making process. And that's why we did this study to try to understand whether or not there was actually a practical impact at our hospital once we implemented it. So how did you go about doing that? What we simply did was we took the data before implementing the, the platform and then the data afterwards in a, in a hard metric. The, the time from arrival to the door to the time they got the intervention or the intervention started. And we saw that about 33 minutes was shaved off of that time, which means a lot to a brain. Yeah, that does for sure. So what did, can you give me more specifics about how the results were and what the problems that you came across? The problem for any such study is one, it's one, so this is a single institution study. So we're only looking at one hospital and we're a teaching center and teaching centers, I, I, I hate to admit it, are slow. We have to teach. We have students, we have residents, we have fellows, and we talk and we talk and we talk. So by culture, we're just going to be slower. When I visit small community hospitals that do stroke and do stroke well, they're very, very fast. When we see this in the, the States and frankly anywhere in the world, a small to medium-sized hospital that does stroke as a major part of their service line is very good at it. And a major academic center that does a thousand different things they're not so good at the operation. So that's a bias. Uh, another bias, I suppose, is that we are always improving at stroke care, right? So how much of the time improvement is process improvement that doesn't have to do with the algorithm and how much process improvement is because the algorithm is there? In any case, the results are probably reflective of what you can gain in a typical academic medical center. How do we know that? Well, people are still adopting it and using platforms like the one we have and ones like it. There are three that I'm aware of right now that form, but the real critical innovation is that you have a active movement of imaging data about a patient very fast. So a typical chain of events in a hospital is there's a patient, someone gets called, they call another person, they call another person, they call a CT scan, they get a CT scan. Everything happens in series. It's a long bunch of bottlenecks. But when you have a situation where a single activating event can simultaneously contact multiple teams, you suddenly turn some of this communication parallel. And that's what these algorithms do. The platform detects a CT that has a possible stroke going on that looks pretty good. It can alert several people in the chain of events, and they start working at it at different parts in that chain. And I think that's actually part of the benefit. Another is that you have this more attention to rehearsing the times and it brings awareness of the case earlier in the process. And so that allows a little more preparation time so that when the patient finally hits the hospital, you're ready to go. So these early alert and then parallelization of operational activation. What's the next step like to create a larger network moving from parallel communication to network communication? How would you bring in multiple elements? It's a great, uh, great question. I think healthcare is unique in that we worry so much about privacy. So that's always the impediment. But if we were to be able to walk a little bit past normal behavior around privacy, what you'd be looking at is community-based information transfer. So a stroke or a heart attack or a trauma anywhere in the network, you're gathering information all the way from the event locus where the patient is picked up all the way to where they're treated so that instead of having a number of handoffs with individual people, you're gathering that information through the network. It's, 
It's there. It's there for data analysis. It's there for process improvement. We've made it much more like, I hate to use the company, Uber, where you're studying everything all the time in terms of transport. Those are the things I'd love to see in healthcare, where we're constantly learning from the behaviors of the system. It's something very hard to do, but I would say that's the next step. And we certainly encourage companies like Rapid uh, to do exactly that, to create uh, data containers and data structures that allow us to do that. And of course, they, they are very interested in how we can get the data protected and sufficiently private to do that in a way that makes everybody happy. And are we training our physicians adequately to approach these sorts of new systems? Uh, Rachel, I think you both, both of us know that, uh, what is it? Uh, scientists never change their minds. They just die. <laughs> the nice thing about our, our area is that um, young people are coming in all the time. And I would say some of the younger physicians are adopting the technology. But what's really going to lead the change, I think, is the young ones that are very used to living on their phones, living on, on the net, they already do expect that healthcare behaves a lot more like highly functional software platforms. So I think it's on its way and the, the physicians that are coming out are expecting the data to be at their fingertips. So I definitely see that the, uh, the young, the residents and fellows that we train are very ready to embrace these technologies and they're the ones that are so eager to explore it and publish on it. What's the future here? The future is, if, if it were up to me, I'd have for stroke a, a municipality-based software that's able to coordinate and streamline data transmission throughout the entire thing. If I were to go so bold, I would look for governments that are willing to support EMS activities to do that because, let's face it, the average ambulance company is not interested in putting out, making a huge investment in AI-driven triage technology, but municipalities that would benefit from lower morbidity and mortality from these really sick patients, I think there's a lot to be gained there. So I think as the data comes out that shows that you can roll these out on a municipality basis and have an aggregate reduction in brain injury, morbidity, disability, and mortality, I think uh, I would like to think that healthcare leaders uh, would see that that's useful process improvement that could be done repeatedly and reproducibly. Thank you so much, Dr. Huey. Appreciate your time this morning. Thank you so much for inviting me. It's For the listeners, she's really cool. I wish you could hear the, the pre-interview conversation. I learned a lot. Before we talk with Dr. Danny Sands about medication adherence, we're going to shift gears here and talk with Dr. Tony Blyer first. He's a professor of nephrology at the Wake Forest School of Medicine in North Carolina. About his presentation at the Kidney Week of the American Society of Nephrology, he talked about a cohort study looking into the prevalence risk factors and outcomes of gout in dialysis patients using a cohort of virtually all dialysis patients in the United States. This week at the American Society of Nephrology at Kidney Week, you had a presentation about the risk factors and outcomes of gout and dialysis patients. Could you describe for the audience what the cohort study was about? Yes, and thank you for having me on your podcast, first of all. So we did a study looking at the United States renal data system data from 2017. And this data captures almost all the dialysis patients in the United States. We looked at 389,321 adult dialysis patients who had had at least one outpatient dialysis claim in 2017. And of these, 14.7%, about 15%, had at least one gout claim. 
We then compared the data, so we had a lot of cross-sectional data, or we had a lot of descriptive data about causes of kidney disease, gender, race, and comorbid conditions. And we showed, first of all, that these gout occurrences were more common in men, though they also occurred in women as well. In patients with gout and without gout, we had a similar breakdown in terms of race. Gout patients were on average older and had a higher comorbidity burden, especially for cardiovascular conditions and a higher risk of hospitalization and mortality. All right, and so what are the approaches that nephrologists and, and also practitioners in general, internal medicine specialists, how can they approach this sort of problem? I think the first thing to do is to recognize that gout is prevalent and does occur in dialysis patients. To me, that's the biggest takeaway from this study. I feel that a lot of times people think of gout as this disease that, you know, people who are, you know, rich and sitting back, we have these pictures from years and years ago of these very rich people eating liver pudding, sitting back, having a beer, and having gout. And gout is really not, that's not the common presentation. Gout is almost always, about 80% of the time, associated with decreased renal excretion of uric acid. So gout is really a disease associated with chronic kidney disease. And I think a lot of times we think of it more as a lifestyle type of disease and ask our patients to change their lifestyle. A lot of times that doesn't work and we really need to treat these patients and we can really prevent a lot of morbidity and mortality, or I should say morbidity, associated with gout if we treat it. Right. And so this cohort study, besides describing the risk factors and so forth, what are some of the actionable items that can possibly lead to changes in the practice? Uh, I think the one thing is just to, first of all, recognize that gout is a problem. It's going to occur more commonly in patients with a lot of comorbid conditions. We need to consider our treatment of gout and our prevention of gout, even with our patients who are, have chronic kidney disease. Um, so I think that's one important thing. And then there's a, a research component to it also to help to explain why patients who have gout have a higher unadjusted death rate or even adjusted death rate than other dialysis patients. We found in our study that it was about a 10% increased risk adjusted. And so why is this occurring? And this is something that I think we need further studies. We know that the ferritin level, a marker of inflammation, was elevated in our patients compared to patients without gout. So I think it's also important that we consider the medications that we can give to patients who are on dialysis. So that's a, a, a different topic, but we always have to be cognizant of our dosing of medications uh, for patients on dialysis. I think gout in general, I think we've beaten gout. I think that we have a number of treatments for gout and almost no one should have to suffer from severe gout or even recurrent intermittent gout. Medications like allopurinol are first line to help prevent gout. Um, second line agents include Febuzostat. We also have piglodicase, which can be used in patients with tophaceous gout and it's very effective. So there are a lot of preventive therapies available, and I think that we need to treat gout. And if we can't treat it well, we need to send our patients to rheumatologists or other experts in this area. Thank you so much. Truly a challenge. Lastly, adherence is a huge barrier to optimal care, and the etiology can be very complex. We had the opportunity to speak with Dr. Danny Sands about some of the factors contributing to poor adherence and what some of the solutions might be. 
thank you so much for joining us. And today I really wanted to talk about medication adherence. And can you tell us a little bit about what the problem could be and possible solutions for that? Sure. You know, part of my time, I'm a primary care doctor, Rachel, and medication adherence is, is just such a, a significant problem and largely a preventable problem. You know, what we see is we see patients who aren't taking medications as prescribed, and what happens there? Well, that causes them to get sick. Their chronic illnesses aren't managed properly. Their acute illnesses aren't managed properly. They have morbidities and illnesses and problems that are keeping them out of work. It increases healthcare costs and on and on and on. There are so many problems that result from uh, medication non-adherence. I know I saw that the WHO says that more than 30% of medicine-related hospital admissions occur due to medication non-adherence. Is that, that's a striking medical issue then. It is striking. And there are uh, projections about how much it costs too. I know in the United States, non-adherence alone is costing us, you know, on the order of $300 billion a year or more. And I've seen estimates much higher than that as well. So yeah, this is a, a huge problem that we need to reckon with. Right. Also, again, according to the WHO, because they narrow it down to basically five major factors, which would include socioeconomic factors, therapy-related factors, patient-related factors, condition-related factors, and health system or healthcare team-related factors. Could you speak to that last one, health system factors? Yeah. I mean, I think that when you look at a huge set of reasons why patients don't take their medications is because we're not engaging patients in a conversation about why they're taking the medication or in choosing the medication at all. What we know is that when we engage patients in developing a plan of care, which sometimes includes medications, the patients are more likely to do that because they have more of a stake in it. You know, it's not just someone telling them what to do. It's human nature is you, someone tells you what to do, you know, may or may not do it. But if I'm engaged in that, if I am part of that conversation and I've decided that together with my healthcare professional, well, then I'm more likely to do it. And so that's, I think, the, uh, the, the major health system issue is that we need to have a trusting relationship with our patients. We need to engage them. Yes, I'm telling you to take this. That is not going to work. And we can't be practicing medicine that way. Are we training our physicians these days to approach problems in that sort of patient-centered approach? Not enough, Rachel. And we need to do a better job there. And I think part of the problem are the time pressures that we have, but part of it is an attitudinal issue. And yeah, we need to be teaching people better about shared decision-making, how to do this with patients, how to do it when time is limited. There are ways to do it. I co-founded a nonprofit called the Society for Participatory Medicine, and one of the things we're focused on is how do we create that, that trusting uh, relationship with open communication and shared decision-making and so on. So, uh, so yeah, I'm really all about that. I think it's a very important uh, topic, and we need to be doing more education. By the way, not just education of healthcare professionals, but we need to educate patients, too, about how to engage in that kind of a collaboration with their healthcare professional. So what are some practical approaches that can be taken to resolve that gap? Explain to the patient, this is the problem that we have. The problem that we have, let's just take blood pressure, for example. The problem we have is that your blood pressure is high. Let's talk about why that's a problem. Because too often, particularly with chronic conditions, we just assume that, oh, well, the patient is going to be interested in lowering their blood pressure. 
But why? There's got to be a reason there. And so we need to go back and explain to patients why this is important. Well, if your blood pressure is high, it puts a strain on your heart, strain on your blood vessels. This can lead to these problems over the years. We need to have that discussion. You're not just doing this to solve a number problem. You're doing this to help the patient live their best, healthiest life uh, as long as possible. So we need to have that conversation. And then we need to engage them in a discussion about what are the options. Now, there are some specialties in which there aren't a lot of options. But in, many, in most situations, we have more than one option. It can be an option of, in this case, which medication to choose. It could be an option of you know, medication treatment or surgery or radiation. There are all kinds of options we present to patients. With medications, we need to say, look, here are the options we have. These are the well-studied uh, options. We could treat you with this kind of drug, and these are the pros and cons, this kind of drug, these are the pros and cons, and so on. Go through that conversation, and, and you could say, personally, I think that you know, drug B would be the best choice for you, but what do you think about this? And patients have preferences, and that's important to respect those. We need to have those conversations. So I think that's the first thing. Second thing is we need to be able to have a conversation with a patient about making this easy for them to take. So we should not be prescribing medications that have to be taken more than once a day if we can avoid it. Because there's good literature to show that the more times a day you have to take something, the less likely you are to take it. So let's try to do that. Let's try to have a conversation with patients also about the fact that if you're not tolerating this medication for any reason, don't just stop. Contact me and let's have a conversation about that. We need to make things affordable for our patients. Well, but this is a major issue, and that's a reason why patients don't take their medications, because it costs too much. We need to make sure to be sensitive to that as well. And then we need to appreciate the fact that our patients may be taking a number of different medications, and it may be hard for them to remember. So these are sort of human factors. And first of all, again, we need to have them keep in mind why they're doing it, to keep their eye on the prize, right? They're doing this so they can see their kids grow up and get married, or, or be with their grandchildren, whatever. But we also need to recognize the fact that they're taking different medications. It's hard to remember them. Life gets in the way. So what can we do for them? Well, we give them tips. We say, look, you know, you have, you have morning medications. Put these with your toothbrush. You're just getting the habit of taking them in the morning. But we can also offer them tools to help them take medications. So I, I'm the chief medical officer of a company called MediSafe. And MediSafe offers a free app that's available for Android and iPhone. And it's very highly rated, and it's a tremendous tool for patients who want to understand their medications, keep track of them, and remember when to take them. It will remind them. It will cheer them on. It give them, give them a positive reinforcement and say, hey, you did a good job this past week. Keep it up. Um, and it will even allow you to bring uh, other people, loved ones, family members in to remind them if you're missing medications. So that's very useful as well. So those are some of the things that I would mention to you is things that we can do as physicians. But we also need to, every time we see patients, review what the patient is taking. Are they taking them? Are they having problems with any of their medications? And be sensitive to these things. Uh, well, I had a patient once who hated the word adherence because she said it made her feel like she was sticky tape. Can we come up with a better word? You know, we've been talking about this for so long, Rachel. And, and you know, for years we talked about compliance. Right, drug, drug compliance, you remember that, right? And, and that was horrible too, because it's like, oh, the healthcare system, the doctors are like squishing the patients and making them uh, be compliant. Adherence, uh, I think the way we talk about this kind of sounds the same, 
But I think what we're really saying is, you know, is the patient adhering to the agreed upon medication regimen? I don't know what the best terminology is, but I think, you know, how we're thinking about it is what's really important. But what about patients who don't even fill their prescription? Is there anything that we need to think about? Yeah, um, that is certainly an important issue, Rachel. Years ago, I used to be the uh, chief medical officer of an e-prescribing company, and we talked about these issues. And one of the factors that, that happens is that we give patients a prescription, and they may lose that prescription. Right? They may lose it, they may decide to bring it to the pharmacy or maybe not bring it to the pharmacy, and then they've got to like wait or they've got to pick up the prescription. And then, by the way, when the end of the month comes or the end of the three months come, then they've got to make sure to get the next refill of it, right? And then to make it even worse, at the end of the, at least in the United States, I don't know the, uh, all over the world, but in the United States, at the end of a year, then they've got to contact their doctor's office in order to get a new prescription written for the new year. So, yeah, there are a lot of steps that happen there. One of the things we observed when we started doing e-prescribing in the U.S., where all of a sudden you didn't have a situation where a patient could lose a prescription because we're electronically transmitting these prescriptions to the pharmacy. And that's done, you know, in the United States, that's become pretty universal for a lot of reasons. But because of that, you take one of the problems out of this. Patients aren't going to lose the prescription anymore. But one of the things we found in the early days of e-prescribing is that people just didn't go pick up their prescriptions. So, uh, you know, so when the patient had to bring the prescription there and they waited for it to be filled, they got it. But if we electronically send them there, sometimes the patients don't pick them up. So, you know, I think that one of the things we can do through the e-prescribing networks is we can see the dispensed drug history. So when the patient comes back and their blood pressure still isn't controlled, we can actually look and see their dispensed drug history. See, did the patient pick up this prescription? Now, there may be high-risk patients where I want to assign staff to monitor these patients and check up on them and find out if they fill them, or even just call them and find out if they fill their prescription. Oh, I just think we need to recognize the fact that this is a big problem, and oftentimes we see patients who aren't responding to medications, and we keep increasing their medications and increasing their medications, and we're getting frustrated. Say, God, I got this patient on, you know, three different blood pressure medications. Blood pressure is still high. What's going on? And, and the reality is the patient may not be taking those medications. And so that's why we need to think about this up front when a patient is not responding. The other thing that we didn't get a chance to talk about are the cultural issues. Not just cultural, but language and literacy. So we think about general literacy. Can they speak the language? Do they understand the prescription? Do they understand you know, what you're telling them about their health? Do they have cultural problems with taking any medications? Are there issues there? They're afraid of the condition they have. They're afraid of medications. Are there trust issues of the healthcare system? You know, we have a historical problem in the United States because we have a lot of African Americans who have a deep-seated distrust of the healthcare system for good historical reasons. And so those are issues we need to think about. So all of those things, I think, become very important. So thank you so much for your time. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. That's all the time we have for this week. Thanks so much for listening. I hope you learned something new. And we have a lot of exciting interviews coming up with the American College of Rheumatology next week, the American Heart Association, and some relevant news about global climate change and health conditions. So looking forward to telling you about that next week.
Stay safe and stay healthy. Stay tuned for our next episode as we are joined by top thought leaders to discuss the latest groundbreaking research presented at the American College of Rheumatology annual meeting.